Let's turn back to the last part of Matthew chapter 6, where we find the Lord Jesus Christ dealing with the subjects of worry. Uh, Worry is one of the most common and universal of human experiences, and is also one of the most crippling and destructive and destabilizing things there is. It's something that can eat away at your minds and sap away your strength and rob you of sleep, devour your time, damage your health, and impede you from useful activity. According to a recent study, uh, the average British adult spends one hour, 50 minutes a day worrying, uh, which adds up to nearly 28 days worth of worry per year or almost five whole years of your adult life if you live to be 80. Uh, worry really is a most harmful and detrimental phenomenon. And here in his famous Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Son of God addresses the issue head on, and he urges his disciples not to be consumed with anxiety. But he doesn't just command them not to worry, as though simply being told not to do it, it would be enough to cure them from it. No, as is so often the case in Scripture, the command comes with reasons attached to it. Jesus, as the ever-wise physician of souls, he supplies his disciples with a number of compelling reasons as to why they never need to worry. He appeals to their minds and he lays before them some specific considerations for them to chew on and that ought to act as a defence against worry. And the tone here is not that of a stern and harsh haranguing, as though he's giving them a good telling off and uh, saying, how dare you worry, you wicked, good-for-nothing fools. His tone is gentle and compassionate and tender. He's saying to them, let me assure you that there's never going to be any need for you to be anxious. If God is your loving, caring, all-knowing Heavenly Father, then can you not see why there's no need to fret and panic about things in this life? And so the main effect that this teaching ought to have upon us is not uh, that it produces uh, deep feelings of uh, guilt in us so that we end up worrying about our worry problem, but rather it should be reducing in us a renewed and deepened confidence in the magnificent God we belong to if our faith (coughs) is in Christ. And it should also produce a realignment of our priorities away from dwelling upon earthly concerns and instead being absorbed with heavenly ones. And this uh, teaching in the passage we're looking at tonight follows on uh, closely from uh, what has gone before in verses 19 to 24. If we do as Jesus instructs in those verses, and if we're focused on heavenly treasures rather than earthly ones, if our eyes are set on spiritual realities, 
not just physical ones, if we're living for God rather than for money and possessions, then it follows uh, that earthly needs will not be consuming all our attention, but rather God's kingdom and his righteousness will be our chief concerns. Ultimately, then, it's having a heavenly spiritual outlook on everything that's the chief antidote to worry. So we're going to look at the teaching Jesus gives here on this subject and consider five reasons why if you're a disciple of the Son of God, you never, ever need to worry about anything. Reason number one is in verse uh, 25. We ought not to worry because it is short-sighted. The Lord Jesus says, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So worrying fails to see the big picture. It concentrates on things of relatively little importance and blows them out of all proportion. It distorts our view of what really matters. In that sense, it is short-sighted. When we worry, then comparatively unimportant things are absorbing our attention and we've lost our sense of perspective. And so Jesus gives the examples of worrying about food and clothing and he says to his disciples, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Can't you see He's saying that food isn't something that's worth getting all stewed up about. A food is simply uh, there to serve something far more important. It's simply a, a means of sustaining and supporting something that really is valuable, your life. And similarly, clothing isn't worth getting stressed about. It's simply a means of covering and keeping warm the body. It's the body that's the important thing, not the garment it happens to be wrapped in. But worrying distorts all that. It makes material things like food and clothing the really important things, forgetting that they are simply means to an end. Life is not just for eating and drinking. It's a wonderful gift from God meant to be used for magnifying God and doing good to other people. And the body is not simply a showroom for nice outfits. It's a marvellous God-given tool for doing his will in the world. Food and clothing are just means of helping and sustaining things that really do matter a great deal, our lives and our bodies. It's life and the body that have real value since they can be used to glorify God and serve other people. So worrying about food and clothing or other earthly things like money and houses and vehicles, it involves a loss of perspective and a skewed view of reality. All those things are not ends in themselves. They're meant to serve a higher purpose of enabling us to use our lives and bodies in God's service. So getting all worked up about foods 
And clothing is a bit like a motor enthusiast getting all excited about petrol when that's just fuel for something much more important, the car itself. Or it's like an art lover getting completely obsessed with a wooden frame. Whereas what really matters is the picture that that frame is simply there to support. Worrying distorts our perspective. It's short-sighted. It it blurs our vision of what's really important. So the first antidote to worry is to get a fresh perspective on what it is that really matters. We need to take a step back, as it were, from the fine details of life and take in the big picture. I have been put in this world by an almighty creator, and I have put been put here to bring glory to him. That's my function. That's why I exist. And I need to see uh, all those other things, food and clothing, material things, in their proper place in relation to that. God has given me life. God has given me a body. And if he's given me those things... Can't I trust him to provide all the comparatively little things I need along the way to fuel and sustain and support my life and my body? Those other things can take up so much of our attention, can't they? But they're really here, remember, to help you fulfill a much higher and grander and greater purpose. Life's more than food, the body's more than clothing, We're here for something much more valuable and useful and glorious than the mere pursuits of stuff. And then reason number two is that we ought not to worry because it is earthbound. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus continues in verse 26. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So when we worry, we're looking at things purely from an earthly perspective. We've lost sight of the God who is reigning on high in heaven. We're failing to factor him into the equation. And so Jesus bids us look at the birds. Now, there's an amazing variety of birds in our world. There are nearly 10,000 different species coming in all different shapes and sizes and colors. And it's estimated that there could be up to 400 billion individual birds on the earth. And how is this vast multitude of birds fed? They don't sow and reap and gather into barns like humans do. There are no feathered farmers, no avian agriculturalists. They don't plough the fields and scatter the good seed on the lands and then come back later to harvest their crops. Now, they may in some cases have nests, but they don't build enormous storehouses to stockpile vast quantities of foods uh, to use themselves and sell on to others. And yet... In spite of that, there's someone who keeps on feeding them. Almighty God provides for them. He supplies plenty of insects and worms and seeds and nectar and grain and grass for them to devour. And so innumerable sparrows and blackbirds and wrenches and finches are daily nourished 
by an unseen hand, the hands of the world's creator. And if God takes care of them, this is the argument Jesus is using, how much more can he be trusted to take care of us? Because we are more valuable than they are. Uh, Contrary to recent surveys that have shown a a great number of people think that animals are more valuable than humans or of the same value, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are made, uh, destroys that way of thinking, and he says to his disciples that they're of more value than the sparrows. Elsewhere in Matthew 12, verse 12, Jesus says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? You have vastly more value than a bird, and so if your father takes a loving interest in them and provides for them, how much more we who are humans, and in this context, especially those who are in God's own family, we're not on a par with the animals. The Bible emphatically puts you and me far above them. We're superior to all the beasts and the birds. Our lives have greater value than theirs. And so if God cares about them, he's assuredly going to care about us. We're not worthless. Each and every human life is exceedingly precious. That applies to everyone, regardless of ethnicity or culture or belief or whether you're born yet or not. But what applies then to all mankind generally applies especially to those who are God's people, those who've been brought by grace into his family, who are God's children, who can call God their father. God places an extremely high value upon you and me. And so if God cares for the lesser, the birds of the air, surely he'll take care of the greater, his beloved disciples. So when you're tempted to worry, remember the birds. They are of comparatively little worth. But they're not overlooked or neglected by the Almighty. Indeed, Jesus says, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father. And we are of more value than many sparrows. So the second antidote to worry is to realise how earthbound it all is. And to lift up our eyes to heaven and the one who is... There, there's an unseen heavenly father who cares for all his creation, but especially for you, because you're the pinnacle of his creation, a member of the human race made in his image. And if you're a disciple of Christ, you're among that redeemed multitudes. So the starlings and robins and pigeons that you might observe hopping around in your garden or flying past your window are preaching to you. God provides for us, they're saying, so you can be sure he will take care of you. There's no need to worry. So all around us, we have these little feathered reminders that our God cares. And so when an anxious spirit begins to take hold of you, what should you do? Factor almighty God back into the equation. Remember how valuable you are to him And remind yourself that you have a Father in heaven who's constantly watching over you and fixing his loving attention upon you. Worry is earthbound, so lift up your thoughts to heaven. And then reason number three is in verse 27. We ought not to worry 
because it is futile. Which of you, by being anxious, Jesus says, can uh, add one cubit to his stature? And the meaning could possibly be there, uh, can add one single hour to his span of life. Worrying doesn't actually achieve anything. It's not productive. It doesn't actually make you better off or profit you in any way. Anxiety isn't going to make any problem go away. Fretting isn't going to alter any of your circumstances. You can't prolong your life or increase your heights by a single degree merely by worrying. Worrying isn't going to put food on your table or make adversity is less likely or give you any extra time in this world. So worrying means wasted time and wasted energy. You can't actually change things or improve your condition by letting agitated thoughts whir around in your head. So why waste what precious time you do have on such a useless exercise? Much of what we worry about won't happen anyway. And if it's going to happen, then fretful thoughts about it beforehand won't prevent it from happening. So worry achieves nothing. It's futile. That's Jesus' next point here. And so we have to reason with ourselves. Worry is a state of mind, and so we have to take our minds in hand. When we fall into an anxious frame of mind, we have to give ourselves a good talking to and tell ourselves that we are powerless to alter things. Uh, the things that may be causing us concern. And so what should we be doing instead? We should be translating our worries into a useful exercise, into prayer. We should be uh, turning those anxious thoughts into Godward thoughts. We may not be able to uh, suddenly just make the thoughts evaporate, but we can do something with them. We can redirect them upwards to the one who actually can change our situation and alter our circumstances, our Father in heaven. And so we find the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 telling us uh, not to be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So it's not that we simply ignore the things that are concerning us and act as if they're not really there, but we take those things and we lay them before the only one who can actually truly help us out, the one who holds our lives in his hands, fretfully chewing the matter over and over within the confines of our own mind isn't going to achieve anything useful, but we can lay the concern before a very interested, a very compassionate, a very tender-hearted father who can impart to us that wonderful peace, the peace which is the very opposite of a disturbed and worry-plagued heart. So we're to exchange the futility of restless fretting which avails nothing into the useful exercise of spreading out the matter before our all-seeing father, and knowing that prayer avails much. We need to see worry for what it is. Futile. It's of no practical help at all. Worry won't make food materialise on the table. It won't pay off the bills we owe. It won't make our problems disappear. It won't make us live any longer or grow richer or become more prosperous. And this is what we have to tell ourselves when 
Anxious thoughts are beginning to uh, creep up and take over our minds. The third antidote to worry is to remember how unprofitable it all is. And then reason number four is in verses 28 to 32. We ought not to worry because it's unnecessary. Why are you anxious? Why do you worry about clothing, Jesus says? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? (coughs) So not only is worry unfruitful in that it doesn't bring about any positive alteration to our circumstances, but it's not necessary because we have a God in heaven who's quite capable of taking care of all our needs. And to drive the truth home, Jesus gives us a second lesson from nature. This time he bids us look at the flowers. And what's translated as in verse 28 as the lilies of the field may actually be just a, a more general term for wild flowers, of which lilies would be but one example. And what a, a beautiful, gorgeous, sumptuous array of flowers we can observe in our world. They come in hundreds of thousands of varieties. They boast uh, the whole spectrum of brights striking colours. They often have such elaborate designs. And how do the fields around us become adorned with such splendour? There's no intense labour, no spinning of thread, no sewing or weaving or knitting involved. And yet even the great King Solomon, with all his fabulous wealth and resources, could not produce clothes more magnificent than those of the fields with all their flowers. It's the God of heaven who thus adorns the fields. All the uh, lilies and tulips and uh, poppies and daffodils we observe, they are his handiwork. But aren't flowers so temporary? They hardly last very long at all. They're here one moment and and then they're gone. One moment they're in full bloom and the next moment they're fit only for throwing into the dustbin. And yet God cares about them. And we humans are so much more valuable and precious than mere flowers. And so if God takes care of the lesser, then surely he's going to take care of the greater. And do you see how that renders worries so unnecessary? Our lives and our bodies are in a very safe pair of hands. There's someone carefully and vigilantly monitoring all of your needs continually. And so Jesus continues, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for the Gentiles? Seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. The unbelieving nations chase after earthly things, Jesus is saying, because that's all there is to life as far as they're concerned. Typically, they leave God out of the picture, and so they preoccupy themselves with trying to attain as comfortable and luxurious and sumptuous a life as possible here on earth. But Jesus' disciples 
are spiritually enlightened. They know that they have a loving Father in heaven, a Father who knows all their needs. And so if you've got an all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful God on the case, why lose sleep over such things? Why get all stewed up and agitated over mere material needs? It's not necessary when you realise that someone far greater and far more capable than you is attending to such things, the God who clothes the fields. And so when you fret about such things, it betrays a deficiency of faith. Not a complete lack of faith necessarily, but a faith that's little and slight. Oh, you of little faith, Jesus says there at the end of verse 30. It shows you're not really confident that God is up to the task of taking care of you. You're considering him to be, in practice, negligent and insufficient. But if you remember that he's in control and he knows all things and he's good and he's wise and he never makes mistakes and he's loving and he's caring and he's in control of everything and he's got the power to do all his will, then doesn't worry, become absolutely unnecessary. So the flowers you see blooming in your garden or out in the countryside, like the birds, are preaching to you. See how God clothes the fields, they cry. That's the God's who cares for you. If he cares for us, you're in such a safe place. The all-directing God of heaven, without whom not one bud would ever open, he holds you in far greater affection than fragile, fleeting flowers. And so you can trust him to look after you and provide for you. So there's the fourth antidote to worry that Jesus gives here. It's to remember that it's unnecessary It's unnecessary because God knows, God cares, God provides. And then reason number five is in verse 33. We ought not to worry because it is distracting. It diverts us from what really should be occupying our attention. So Jesus says... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So what we really ought to be preoccupied with are God's kingdom and God's righteousness, rather than fretting about less important earthly matters. A worldly worry directs our attention away from what really ought to be concerning us. And so the fifth antidote to worry is to refocus on those two great priorities and let them fill your horizon so that other things fade into relative insignificance. There are real concerns that each and every one of us ought to be having day by day. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what does Jesus mean by these? Well, God's kingdom is that uh, sphere or realm in which God's rule and blessing are known and enjoyed. It's what Jesus Christ brings us into, this dimension of great spiritual joy and peace, this kingdom that will last forever and ever, of which Jesus speaks so much in the Gospels. And to seek that kingdom means to seek 
the advancement and extension of God's rule over people's lives in ourselves and in the world around us. It means seeking to put our own lives in submission to Christ's kingship, aligning our priorities with God's priorities, and then endeavouring to bring others into the knowledge of Christ's saving reign. The things of this earth won't last. They'll fade away. They'll become corrupted. They'll disintegrate and be destroyed. But in the kingdom of God, we have something enduring and eternal. And so that's more important than the other things. It ought to be right at the top of our agenda. And then to seek God's righteousness means to pursue the kind of godly, wholesome, countercultural living that's described in the rest of this sermon. Uh, the context suggests that in this particular place, it's not justification by faith that's in view. There is, at the moment you first believe in the Lord Jesus, a wonderful legal declaration of your life that on account of Jesus being righteous, you are considered to be righteous. You are held to be blameless in the sight of God. It's a wonderful doctrine. Our hope rests on the fact that though we have no righteousness of our own, we're counted as righteous through the Lord's Jesus Christ. But wonderful though that doctrine is, I don't believe it's what Christ is talking about here, because you don't need to continually seek after that righteousness. Once you've got it, you've got it forever. Once you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a permanent status of righteousness. Jesus here is calling us to seek after something in an ongoing kind of way. And in view of the rest of the sermon, it would be Uh, that practical righteousness which God works out in the lives of those people whom he has brought to know himself. Uh, Living lives free from uh, lust and unrighteous anger and false swearing and the kind of things Jesus directly deals with in uh, the wider context of this sermon. That's what we're to be chasing after and pursuing that we would grow in our likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ, that our hearts and our attitudes and our motives and our conduct and speech would be purified and transformed as the Lord Jesus works in us by his Spirit. That's what we should be investing our thought and our energy and our meditation upon. How can I serve the interests of God's kingdom? How can I make him known? And how can I become more righteous in that practical sense? How can I be sanctified? How can I grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Those things are more important than anything else because they have lasting value. Worry distracts you from those things. It makes lesser things the be-all and end-all of your life. When you worry about your bank balance, your mortgage, your job, your rent, your bills, your house, your car, your possessions, you're being diverted away from what should really be occupying your attention because of the vast value they have, this kingdom that will never end, the kingdom of God and the righteousness, which as God works in us by the Spirit can be produced uh, increasingly in our own lives. So replace worry about temporal things with concern about eternal things, Jesus is saying, the extension of God's kingdom and the deepening of 
righteousness. And if those are the things you're seeking, God will give you the other things as well. Now, that doesn't mean we have a blanket promise here that it's impossible for a genuine Christian ever to feel hungry or to be lacking in clothes. The point Jesus is making is that if you concern yourself with the greater things, God will see to the lesser things. He'll provide for you in accordance with the wise and all-encompassing plan he has devised for your life. And nor does this mean that we should abandon all sensible thoughts and forward planning and diligence and hard work. Uh, What Jesus is forbidding is that kind of agonizing, self-tormenting anxiety that makes you feel restless and fearful and ill at ease. You concentrate on the most important things, Jesus is saying, and leave the lesser things to God. The cares of this world and the Deceitfulness of riches are like choking thorns. So don't get absorbed by them, but throw yourself instead into the pursuit of higher things. Here's the fifth antidote to worry, remembering how distracting it is and readjusting your priorities back onto God's concerns. And then Jesus closes this part of his discourse with a final concluding instruction. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, just take one day at a time. Deal with each trouble as it comes, rather than imagining what might potentially be lurking round the corner. Don't live in the world of potential troubles but deal with the actual troubles right in front of you today. Jesus isn't promising an absence of trouble for his followers. The rest of his teaching uh, confirms that in this world there will be tribulation for those who are his. There may well be food shortages and financial setbacks and health problems and losses and uh, afflictions of various kinds, but instead of Uh, living our lives in dread of what might happen in the future, deal with what's actually happening right here and now. Jesus is saying, leave tomorrow to God, for his mercies are new every morning. So in that sense, tomorrow's going to take care of itself. And so we have timeless and ever-relevant counsel uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ here about one of the biggest destroyers of peace, that problem of worry. We're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to take heed and fill our minds with the thoughts and truths and meditations Jesus sets before us here. Worry is short-sighted, it's earthbound, futile, unnecessary, and distracting. And so day by day, instead, we're to keep ever in view this marvellous, all-sufficient, all-loving, big-hearted Heavenly Father who's taken us into his family. And we're to remember that we belong to his kingdom and we can depend upon him to meet all our needs. And we can remember that there are far more important things to occupy our minds with than mere food, clothes, money, and possessions. But if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
then actually there is something you do need to worry about and you need to worry about it seriously because God isn't your heavenly father if you haven't embraced Jesus Christ as your saviour. You don't belong to this everlasting kingdom of grace because you have failed to live your life in commands with the, in line with the commands that your holy God in heaven has given and there's eternal judgment waiting for you, a judgment Jesus warns about frequently in this very sermon and elsewhere in his teachings as found in the gospel. And so your most pressing need is to come to know this God as your father and enter into his kingdom and be saved from that coming judgment. And what you need is to approach the one who spoke all these wise words, Jesus himself, and put your hopelessly inadequate, messed up, broken, God-displeasing life into his hands, for he can turn it around and transform it, forgive your past, make you new here and now in the present and prepare you for a future of glory. It's his death on the cross that saves us from that judgment we deserve. It's his sacrifice that pays the price for all our sin and puts us in right standing with the God of heaven so that we can be adopted into his family and received as his children. And so it's the speaker of these words, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that you urgently need to be crying out to, calling upon him in repentance over your sin, seeking a mercy and forgiveness you do not deserve, but that he freely offers and can provide because of the blood he shed on the cross. And then when your sin problem has been sorted out, when Jesus Christ has become Lord of your life, then God becomes your father and you can know whatever might happen tomorrow or next week or next year or however long you're spared, that your affairs are ultimately in the hand of one who loves you dearly and can give to you a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that comes through Jesus Christ, the Saviour of the world. Amen.